thought I would get a lot of blank star- stares on that line of questioning because uh, that's actually a tougher question. We're going to talk about that some today. I just want to tell you this so you're getting the news. And uh, it's a good thing to teachers take those guys. Isn't that a good thing? We're very grateful for our teachers. Julie Andrews, thanks for rallying. And she's moving into the position that Annika has done so well for so many years. Good work. Good work. Now, take them out, close the door, and get out. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Hey, this is really a serious thing. Uh, you, I hope you do look in here for prayer requests and different things. But one thing that um, we just got news of this week... Bruce Miles is desperately sick again. If you hadn't heard, um, a former pastor for decades at Rocky Mountain Bible Church, who is one of our sister evangelical churches in the community, we've done ministry together for years and years. Bruce um, retired and then had moved north of here and was kind of getting on to the next phase. And the church is doing great, and, and Mike Tharp's doing a great job over there pastoring, but he just found out, Bruce did, pancreatic cancer. It's terrible. It's literally, the tumors are wrapped around the main veinage in there. There's, it's inoperable. They're literally giving him 12 to 15 months. It's just an amazing turn of events. And of course, they've been through so much, and he's been so sick so many times. Let's just take an extra moment and pray for them. Lord, on the behalf of Bruce and Donna, the family, um, We come and we ask for your mercy. Um, If you would choose to heal, it would be miraculous. We promise we would give you the glory. Um, It would be an unthought of thing, actually. But uh, we also ask for grace and for courage and strength and uh, the ability, if these are the last days for Bruce and for them as a family, the ability to use wisely, to love um, to see you, to uh, finalize, kind of get to his actual cure, uh, which would be the release from this body that has not served him very well by our standards. So we just pray on their behalf. We ask for extra grace and help us as we think many here have relationships spread around and ways to contact, help us to support them and nurture them as uh, they're moving forward. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, And Jim is actually in the country this time, so we won't pray for him. Okay, is that okay? We'll just, no, actually, he's uh, just back east with his uh, Eagle Project group on a board meeting, and uh, he'll be back here, I think, sometime late tomorrow. So he sends his greetings. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to uh, give you some information about this ongoing thought. We've been talking now for a couple of weeks. We'll talk through the Lent season that a study of sin and thinking and considering sin, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And of course, as Americans in the 21st century, we have basically removed that last letter on the slide, that last word from the dictionary. We've taken sin and we've thrown it out. And I think we should consider that. We should consider the effects. We should consider how we make ethical decisions as people. I think we're going to briefly touch some of that. But then I wonder if we have some special insight as Christians into how to make ethical decisions and how we could be helpful to our society. We won't get very far into the helpful to the society part, but I'm hoping you walk away with a different sense of ethics. 
I picked up, I get the Scientific American magazine because, mainly because, they're desperately atheistic. And they're just absolutely presenting every single part of what's happening in the science world from the exact opposite polar position, worldview-wise, as I take. That way I learn things, right? Well, this little article showed up here and it caught my eye. STD results in minutes. A clinic is trying to come up with something that will actually allow STD testing to happen very rapidly. And here's their, their, their discussion. Getting tested for an STD is a pain. There's a doctor's appointment. You've got to wait for weeks for results. You've got embarrassing human interaction. That's one of my favorite sentences in here. And the hassles are part of the reason that STD infection rates are on the rise. Now, in my ethics, that's not a direct line of connection, okay? But that's the statement. And the seeking now, what they're seeking to provide is a self-service, stigma-free experience that requires no eye contact with strangers. That's the exact sentence, which is fascinating. Why would we avoid eye contact? Because eye contact produces a sense of shame, and this isn't what I want people to know about me. Now, the end of it, the uh, director of this program says, everybody sees the potential here to shorten the time to result, get patients on therapy much more quickly, reduce transmission, reduce anxiety, and provide an overall better experience. I suppose you have to have, uh, you're supposed to have a good experience with an STD. I didn't know that. Nobody likes getting surprised 11 days later to find out that they're positive for chlamydia or gonorrhea. And this is the sentence that actually kept it for me. That's just unacceptable. The that is the fact that you have to wait 11 days, that you have the potential of human contact and eye contact with people in the process. That's unacceptable. Now, stop with me and go this. There's a standard here that somehow said... This is the standard by which we decide and make decisions. There's no discussion about the behavior attached to getting or encountering an STD, not even discussed, not even brought up. It is the after effect and then the the process. So it makes me wonder, how do we make decisions that are ethical? How do we make decisions that are right? Where is the disconnect between the system that the people around us are using? What does their system look like? What does ours look like? If they're different. Here's what I want you to do. Turn to Romans chapter 8. By the way, I don't want anyone to have an STD. And I don't want anyone to receive a bunch of shame. I really don't want that. But I think there might be some decisions further up the train that would maybe be helpful. Romans chapter 8 in those black Bibles in front of you is page 800 in the back section. So there's numbering for the Old Testament and separate numbering for the New Testament. Why they did that, I don't know. But page 800 takes you to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read through here. And uh, I want you to to help me pick up a couple of things. First of all, help me pick up um, some contrasts. You'll hear and see as I'm doing this, I'm actually going to do some hand signals of a, a contrast in this passage. And... Help me develop some word bubbles when we're all done. You know, word bubbles is kind of this new thing where you find words that are repeated frequently in a passage, and that tells you some context and some emphasis that's happening in the passage. So we're going to do that and uh, find those things out when we're all done. I'm going to read in eight, chapter 8, Romans, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Paul builds an unbelievably airtight argument all the way through the book of Romans. Just so you know, there is a class at Georgetown Law School, my brother-in-law took it, that is taught from a secular perspective that uses the book of Romans as a model of one of the best arguments ever presented in the ancient world. It takes and says there is a God. It builds a passage for how that works with the Jews and how it works with the Gentiles. It builds a solution to the problem. It builds a now, how do you live in light of this? It's actually one of the best legal case documents in ancient history, this book. And it all linchpins on these therefores that Paul is using. This is one of them, the good news. Because through Christ Jesus, verse 2, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have with their minds, they have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, doesn't know or submit to God's law. It can't do that. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the realm of the flesh. You're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if in Christ and he is in you, then, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, he's moving it forward, we have an obligation And the obligation clearly is to do exactly what your church tells you to do. Oh, wait, that's not in there, is it? No, I I forgot about that. No, the obligation is not to necessarily do exactly what your church tells you to do. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you'll put to death the misdeeds of the body and you'll live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves again so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. It goes on talking about sonship. Let's move forward to verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings now are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. An interesting turn to talk about sufferings in light of this. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. I wish we had time to unpack a lot of this idea of the impact literally at the systemic level, at the cosmic level, cosmological level. It is, there's an effect. But not only so, but we have ourselves, who, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the sonship. Go over to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, 
We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through his own wordless groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And here's one of the verses that's most commonly picked right out of the passage and used on its own and completely misunderstood because it's not read in light of all that we just read. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that must even include the sufferings. Now, that's a lot, a lot going on there. But tell me some, some uh, observations. You saw, I hope, the contrasts in the passage. Much of that was pretty clear. Give me some word bubbles. What kind of words showed up on a regular basis in there? No, grunting does not count. What was that? Groaning. groaning is definitely one of them, but so groaning does work. Grunting, not so much, but groaning is definitely at the end of the passage, right? It's the image that he uses to say this is one of the long effects is like a corruption, an ongoing weight of things breaking down, a groaning. What else? Other words? Say it. Spirit. Spirit shows up all over the place, doesn't it? Very, very clearly. What's the contrast to the Spirit that shows up all over the place? Flesh or sin, right? Those two things show up in contrast all over the place. That's a big part of what this discussion is. So how do we know, if I asked you the same question I asked these kiddos, how do, you, how do we know what's of the flesh and what's of the Spirit? God actually has some ways for us to know that. That's good. Any other word bubbles you picked up in there? Live? Yeah. So it's about a lifestyle, isn't it? And about actually not just surviving, not hiding in a rock, under a rock, but actually living something out. Anything else? Control. Ooh, control. That one was, I have not heard that one today. I think that's actually true, that that sense of control, in a negative term in this passage, slavery under the boot of, as opposed to freedom. It's interesting because I think when we think about this, this is a psychological discussion. Another one of the words that comes up seldom or you know, frequently in here, excuse me, is mind. This is an effect on our minds. God does not have in mind <laughs> the idea that we live out a Christian life that is disconnected from our minds. Faith does not have anything to do with disjointing from reality. It does not. Faith is about actually coming to terms with reality and saying, okay, right in the middle of this, using our minds, using our rational capacities, we actually can live and work and breathe. That's a big deal. Now, is our mind the same as our brain? Well, there's a discussion about that. I'm not going to solve that in here. That's a good question. I actually believe because of this kind of discussion, there's more to the mind of us than what simply happens in the neurons in our brains. There's something more because there's a lot of discussion in the Bible about something that happens beyond and a spirit working with our spirit that is a completely different word from the mind. And Paul knew what he was discussing when he talked those two things. He was very well-versed. But we have to ask this question. 
with our minds, knowing about sin, recognizing that it exists. Anybody here, by the way, let's just establish this. Anybody here say you're not a sinner? Anybody want to say that? Anybody want to say with me, I'm a sinner. I have sin, and I experience sin, and I experience the consequences of sin. Okay, good. Let's, we can just kind of get that out of the way. Now, in our society, of course, we can't do that that quickly because it's not just an acknowledged, accepted position, right? We have to actually say, no, this is part of what makes this whole thing work is sin. Ask yourself this simple question. What would the human experience be like without, without any sin in the equation? You don't know the answer to that question. Not only that, what would the greatest things about God in the whole narrative of God, what would they make in any sense at all if they weren't in contrast to sin? What would grace mean without sin? What would love mean if everything was lovable? What would hope mean? What would faith mean? What would anything Christian mean if it wasn't in contrast to sin? It's very important for us to come to terms with that because we have a tendency to just throw the whole idea and want to just somehow escape from the whole idea. That is not God's plan. We for sure know that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. I want to tell you this, this as a context because sin has this ongoing effect that continues to accumulate and matter, and often in ways that we never can see. This is a, a web of influence that goes for generations, it goes across nations, it goes across time and everything else, and it is effective. It also is necessary that grace be true and just as effective, and in fact, what God tells us is that grace is even more so in its effect. But I'll just give you this little illustration. I worked for a little while at Home Depot, and I was the, the uh, head of the paint department. If people brought me a can of paint and said, this color doesn't work for me, this color is wrong. If it was a light color and they wanted it darker, this is easy. This is a piece of cake. It literally just takes a couple little drops of black or brown or something into that, and it immediately affects the whole thing all the way through. It's simple. If they bring a dark color and want it lighter... This might take two gallons of paint to a half a gallon of dark paint. It's unbelievable. It is not a direct inverse contrast between those two things. Darkness affects light much more over a much more greater period of time and much more thoroughly than the other way around. So the effects that we feel, of course, are very legitimate. Now, I know that's just an illustration, but we're going to walk into a couple of things here that are ethical, because here's the question. How do people decide whether something is adding to the groaning, adding to the effects of sin, or whether it's something that's actually okay? How do you decide that? We have three things in our society, mostly, that we use, and by the way, we all fall into these categories in different ways. First of all, we use the idea of happiness, right? Does this make me happy? Does it make him happy? Oh, I just want you to be happy. Are you happy at your job? Now, we don't just mean, are the corners of your mouth turned up? We literally mean this is an experiential thing. But it, it is a very temporal thing, right? It's a very elusive thing. It's often something you couldn't possibly 
define, what we almost always mean is, are you experiencing enough freedom to do what you want? (laughs) And are you experiencing enough relief from your problems? That's usually what we really mean by, are you happy? It tends to be positive. It's the word that is the, the ethical word, the technical word is teleological. Does this work for you? Is it purposeful? Does it matter? When you do this, is it functional? Now, the problem with it is, the question mark by it is, how do you know until you try something whether it works? Well, maybe you can reference past. Maybe you can do that. A lot of times you don't know. You're guessing. Not only that, how far does the effect ring out? So if it makes these two people happy, or me and this person happy, but it makes these two people or these four people miserable, how do you decide between those things? Because often that's the case, right? Or this, is it really happiness or is it just the perception and the illusion of happiness? We make all kinds of decisions every day in our society to use chemicals that give us a euphoria that feels like happiness, and it's not a legitimate happiness at all. We've put it that high in our value system and in our decision-making. Now, the second thing is this. We ask the opposite question, is anyone hurt by this decision? If I do this, if I think this, if I believe this, whatever, am I hurting anyone? Now, my first obvious question is, what? What does hurt mean? What's the definition of hurt? How do you even define that in that model of thinking? How do you decide how hurtful, whatever. And actually, the model actually has a sense of it should only hurt if you choose to be hurt by it. Because I'm not intending to hurt you, but if you choose to be hurt by it, then that's the outcome. It also is almost impossible. It's the idea of relativity. It's truth for you. If that is the truth, that's okay. But you're not really trying to hurt anybody. You know, my, my question is, where does the, even the standard of the backstop of hurt, why did we choose that's the backstop, the stopping place? There's a lot of holes there. And when, the more we go about it, the, the sustainability of that idea, you have to say, I don't know. The third thing is this, and this is the one with which Christians are most familiar, and they think it should all work this way, and that is there needs to be laws, and we follow the laws. We do what the Bible says, or we do what something else says, or our national laws say, and we just follow the laws. Now, if we really had the capacity to do that, that would be one thing. We don't. We know that. Paul said that through this whole argument, and If we had this idea that following the rules actually worked, we would just say, okay, everybody just conform to this system. This is why I kind of poked at that. So our obligation now is to conform to everything that your church says, right? This produces legalism in 30 seconds. Where you're just like, wait, so we all just have to find the same thing, even though everybody's got a little different perspective, even though they've got different places, everything else going on. And it doesn't deal with degrees of difficulty. So it might say clearly you shouldn't murder somebody. Most people would agree with that. But what is gluttony? How much is too much? What is 
a lack of forgiveness? What is bitterness? How do those things affect? Surely they're part of the groaning system. How do you determine an amount of things, an excess? And what if we've got things in place that we legalize in our code that are just not helpful to us? There's a bunch of things in most legal codes that either have nothing to do with us or they don't help us. They're actually harmful to us. So you get to this place, and this is where I'm going to walk us out. Is there a possibility that there's a better ethic than either of those three? Now, this is where it gets really interesting. When we think through those word bubbles, the one of the words that came up often and often and often and often, often was spirit. Do you really do the math and realize that the greatest gift that God gave us since Jesus came is the Holy Spirit? Do you really recognize that? Now, not in some kind of... It doesn't even have to be weird at all. It's a very patient, gentle relationship. And here's the most important part. Americans, as we often do, we individualize everything. We talk about all these codes or is it relative to you or whatever. Everything is individual. The Holy Spirit is not designed to be individualistic at all. The Holy Spirit is an us thing, not a me thing. The Holy Spirit works through the experiences. Paul goes back in chapter 12, he'll build a whole case on this is how you live and it is based on the fact that the Holy Spirit gives things to you, and to you, and to you, and to you, and to you, to you, and we bring those together cumulatively as a culture, as the church culture, and now we know how to make decisions, and here's the fascinating part. The decisions may not work at all for us. The teleological idea, does this work? We may make decisions that don't work for us. They cost us our lives. And the Holy Spirit may do that with us. He also may say, well, you know, you're not going to be necessarily on the same boat as the next person. And, you know, this circumstance might actually change to where in three years from now we have a different set of standards. This is adaptive. It has some relativity to it. It does. And it's also got some codes in it. Of course it does. But the code is not one of abject, you've got a fear-based control and manipulation and just conformity to this code. That's exactly what Paul said. You're not given to slavery to another code. This isn't a different code. It doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit gives us a chance to have an ethic to where when we consider why is it not the way it's supposed to be with all of us together with our experience, with wisdom, with a sense of trust in the Holy Spirit and listening, with a review of what God has done in the church for 2,000 years and did with the Jews prior to that, none of which, by the way, was ever the easy way, ever. It was always the hard way. This is the way to work and function in a culture that uses ethics that aren't completely out of bounds. They're just not informed by the Holy Spirit. Just not informed. 
We don't have to be hateful. We don't have to jump up and down. All we have to do genuinely is live. I'm so glad you pointed out the word live because we just have to live with an ethic that the Holy Spirit wants to give to us. And actually, over a period of time, you have no idea what the effect would be cumulatively not to cause more groaning, but actually to bring grace. I'll tell you one story. Julie is not here, but when I went to visit at the hospital, um, she was, it was when she was still struggling. Julia, is, uh, Julia White is dealing with basically some delamination issues in the myelin sheath around her spinal cord. And she's had, had some real trouble walking. Um, now she's in a pretty good spot, but there's a lot of question marks. How long will that last? She may, it may be a lifetime journey for her. But she had struggled her way down to the physical therapy room from her, her hospital bedroom. And she walked into the room, and there was a younger boy in there. And I don't know all the details exactly, but what I remember is what she told me about it and the effect it had on her. She said, I walked into the room. This boy had scar tissue all over him. Had been apparently burned somehow terribly. And he was just pushing a rubber ball, one of those big therapy balls. I was just pushing the ball. He never saw, you know, there's no interaction here. But she came back and she said, I've got it great. How does that happen? How does that kind of effect happen? How, do, how can we live in a way where we can have effect that we never even know about? But where we exhibit grace, we exhibit courage, we exhibit life, and it impacts others, as opposed to whining and griping and complaining and trying to make sure everybody does it our way. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful to you for uh, your word for us. And, fascinatingly, uh, sin is part of that whole grand narrative. Jesus did not end sin when he came. He could have. He didn't. He left it as part of the equation. And... We know from that, as the end of our reading tells us, that you have purpose. You do things to us, with us, through us, as a result of our right posture in relationship to sin. We have the humility. We have the understanding. We learn. We grow. We work together. Thank you for that. Thank you for that system. We're grateful to you. We want to offer ourselves to you today. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we will accept an offering if the ushers will come. Uh, thank you. I, I love that this works this way for us as a church. We give you an opportunity to give from your heart, from what you would desire to do. Your generosity is never-endingly amazing to us. And we commit as a staff, as a board of elders, as people here to use that money wisely. Thank you.
That's got some toe tap. We're not used to that during communion, are we? But that's all right. Hey, there's uh, some folks, hopefully, that will come up here because I didn't assign anybody. Jim does that on a regular basis. But if you would come up and serve communion today, this is an opportunity for us. We do this on a weekly basis so that we keep remembering. You know, we are forgetful. We are as human beings. And this reminds us that he did something very tangible and something meaningful in this world that sin is not how it's supposed to be. But he took care of it for us. He gave his body. Someone will offer you the bread and say, this is his body broken for you. It's that reminder for sure. And someone will offer the juice and say, this is his blood. Without the blood, the mission would not have been accomplished the shedding of the blood. So uh, let's pray together. Why don't we stand? I'll stand. And if you would like to come, everyone is invited. You're, if you'd like to come and, and uh, experience this remembrance today, then come. Lord, thanks for your gift to us. Uh, pass us not. Do not pass us by. Please uh, enter in. Be a part of our story. Give us confidence and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So come.
As you live your life and remember what you receive from this table, and remember God is good. Those are great words. You're blessed to uh, leave here with his spirit, with his love for you, the care of the community and the saints around you. May you have a wonderful week this week. Amen. Thanks for coming. You're dismissed.